Chapter 15 of the French Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by K. Hand. The French Revolution by Robert Matheson Johnston. Chapter 15. The Last Days of the Convention. It is hard when considering the extraordinary features of the reign of terror to realize that in some directions it was accomplishing a useful purpose. If the revolution had been maintained so long, in the face of anarchy, of reaction, and of foreign pressure, it was only by a policy of devouring flames and demented angels. And meanwhile, whatever might be the value or the fate of republican institutions, unconsciously the great social revolution had become an accomplished fact. In the short space of five years, but such years. Social equality, freedom of opportunity, a new national attitude, a new national life, had become ineradicable custom. The assemblies, in their calmer moments, had passed laws for educating and humanizing the French people, and every six months snatched from time and from Bourbon reaction for this purpose was worth some sort of price. When France rubbed her eyes after Thermidor, drew breath, and began to consider her situation, she found herself a vastly different France from that of 1789. The whole course of the revolution was like that of a rocket, rushing and whirring upwards, hesitating a moment, then bursting and scattering its fragments in a downward course to earth. Thermidor was the bursting point of the revolution, and after Thermidor we enter into a descending period, when the shattered fragments gradually lose their flame, when the great inspiration of the revolution dies out, and only the less grand, less terrible, less noble, less horrifying things remain. The track of those shattered fragments must now be followed. The public interpreted the fall of Robespierre more accurately than did the convention, and saw in it the end of the reign of terror, rather than the end of an individual dictatorship. The nightmare was over. Men began to breathe, to talk. From day to day, almost from hour to hour, the tide rose. Rejoicing quickly showed signs of turning into reaction. Within two weeks of the fall of Robespierre, it became necessary for the men who had pulled him down to affirm solemnly that the revolutionary government still existed and would continue to exist. This the convention declared by a formal vote on the 12th of August. At the same time, the convention was returning to life, its members to self-assertion. And if its measures were chiefly directed to preventing for the future any such preponderance as Robespierre had exercised, they also rapidly tended to get in line with the opinion now loudly proclaimed in all directions against terrorism. Within a few weeks, the Committee of Public Safety was increased in numbers and changed in personnel. Among its new members, Cambessers, Saez, Rubel, other committees took over enlarged powers. The Commune was suppressed, Paris being ruled by officials chosen by the convention. But the sections were allowed to remain, for it was their support had given Varus victory on the ninth of Thermidor, and no one foresaw as yet that it was from the sections that the next serious danger would come. The National Guards, by a series of measures, were purged and converted into an exclusively middle-class organization. The Revolutionary Tribunal, after disposing of several large batches from the Robespierreists and the Commune, was reorganized, though not suppressed. Its worst judges and officials were removed, its procedure was strictly legalized, and its activity was greatly moderated. 
It continued in existence, however, for about a year, and almost for lack of business came to an end in the spring of 1795. The terrorists, who had really led the revolt against Robespierre, by gradual stages sank back. At the end of August, Collot, Ballade, and Barrere went off the Committee of Public Safety. Two weeks later, Carrier's conduct at Nantes incidentally came before the Revolutionary Tribunal, and a storm arose about him that finally destroyed any power the terrorists still retained. The press was seething with recovered freedom, and the horrors of Carrier gave the journalists a tremendous text. A long struggle was waged over him. In the convention, Billiard and Collot, feeling that the attack on Carrier was in reality an attack against them and every other terrorist, tried hard to save him. It was not till December that the convention finally decided to hand him over to justice, and not till the 16th of that month that the Revolutionary Tribunal sent him to the guillotine. Among the striking changes brought about by the reaction after Thermidor was that it put two extreme parties in violent antagonism, with the convention and reasonable public opinion as a great neutral ground between them. One of these was the party of the defeated Jacobins, raging at their downfall, convinced that without their guidance the Republic must perish. The other was that of the Muscadines, the scented and pampered golden youth, led by the Conventionale Ferron, asserting loudly their detestation of sans-culottism and democratic raggedness, breaking heads with their sticks when opportunity offered. During the excitement of Carrier's trial, the Muscadines made such violent demonstrations against the Jacobins that the Committee of Public Safety ordered the closing of the club. But neither the committee nor the Muscadines could destroy the Jacobin himself. Fleurus had been followed by continued success. Jordan and Pichegru drove the Austrians before them and overran the Low Countries to the Rhine. Then, in October, Pichegru opened a winter campaign, invaded Holland, and pushing on through snow and ice, occupied Amsterdam in January and captured the Dutch fleet, caught in the ice, with his cavalry under Moreau. At the same time, Jordan was operating further east, and sweeping up the valley of the Rhine, cleared the Austrians from Koln and Koblenz. Further along the Rhine, the Prussians now only held mains on the French side of that river. To the south, the generals of the Republic occupied all the passes of the Alps into Italy, and pushed triumphantly into Spain. With their handful of these successes, the Committee of Public Safety opened peace negotiations at the turn of the year. With peace established, the Committee would be able to transmit its power to a regular constitutional government. As the year 1795 opened, the interior situation began to get acutely troublesome once more. Although the Convention was pursuing a temperate course, relaxing the rigor of the revolutionary legislation on all sides, its concessions did not satisfy, but only encouraged, the reactionary party. Worse than this, however, the winter turned out the worst since 1788 for shortage of food. The Parisian mob, however much it had now lost of its insurrectional vigor, felt starvation no less keenly than before, and hunger made doubly dangerous the continued strugglings of Jacobins and Muscadines for power. The convention tried hard to steer a safe course between them. Toward the middle of February, it was the Jacobins who appeared the more dangerous. In their irritation and fear of the collapse of the Republic, they organized revolt. At Toulon, at Marseille, they seized control, and were suppressed not without difficulty. 
the convention thereupon ordered that the conduct of biad barre and collot should be investigated a few days later it recalled the members of the gironde who had succeeded in escaping from the operations of the revolutionary tribunal among them louvet isnard lanjuinang alarmed at these steps supported by the clamors of the starving for bread the paris jacobins rose against the convention on the first of april the twelfth of germinal the assembly was invaded and for four hours was in the hands of a mob shouting for bread and the constitution then the national guard rallied and restored order and the convention immediately decreed that biad barre and collot should be deported to the colony of guiana guiana the mitigated guillotine for nearly a century the vogue in french politics the guillotine seiche barre's sinister saying only the dead never come back was not justified in his case he alone of the three succeeded in evading the decreed punishment and lived always plausible and always finding supporters to the days of louis philippe when he died obscurely this was a great success for the moderates but to observers of the revolution from a distance from london berlin or vienna the event appeared under a slightly different light pichegru happened to be in paris at the moment and pichegru had been made military commander of the city in reality he had little to do with suppressing the insurrection but from a distance it appeared that the republic had found in its democratic general the conqueror of holland that solid support of force without which the establishment of law and order in france appeared impossible a few days later the pacification began at basel Bartolome had been negotiating for months past and now on the fifth of april he signed a treaty with hardenberg the representative of prussia the government of king frederick william was far too much interested in the third partition of poland then proceeding far too little interested in the rhineland to maintain the war longer it agreed to give the french republic a free hand to the south of the rhine in return for which it was to retain a free hand in northern germany an arrangement which was to underlie many important phases of franco-prussian relations from that day until eighteen seventy one the peace with prussia was followed by one with holland on the sixteenth of march which placed the smaller state under conditions approaching vassalage to france but with england and austria closely allied the war still continued and that not only because austria was as yet unwilling to face so great a territorial loss as that of the netherlands but also because the committee of public safety was not yet anxious for a complete pacification already it was clear that the real force of the republic lay in her armies and the convention did not desire the presence of those armies and their generals in paris in the capital the situation continued bad from winter to spring from spring to summer as late as may famine was severe and people were frequently found in the streets dead of starvation to meet the general dissatisfaction cambacers brought in a proposal for a new constitution but nothing could allay the agitation and in may the reactionary party now frankly royalist caused serious riots in the south at marseilles ai and other towns many jacobins were killed and so grave did the situation appear that on the tenth the committee of public safety was given enlarged powers and throwing itself back relaxed its severity against the jacobins ten days later came a second famine riot the insurrection of the first of prairial a mob honeycombed with jacobin and reactionary agitators invading the convention as in germinal and clamoring for bread and a constitution the disorder in the assembly was grave and long continued 
one member was killed but the government succeeded in getting national guards to the scene and in the course of the next two days poured twenty thousand regular troops into the city order was easily restored several executions took place and the convention voted the creation of a permanent guard for its protection royalism had been raising its head fast since thermidor the blows of the convention even after the first of prairial had been mostly aimed at jacobinism the royalists were looking to a new constitution as an opportunity for a moderate monarchical form of government with the little dauphin as king under the tutelage of a strong regency that would maintain the essential things of the revolution their aspirations were far from unreasonable far from impossible until on the tenth of june death barred the way by removing the young prince the details of his detention at the temple are perhaps the most repellent in the whole history of the revolution separated from his mother and his aunt the princess elizabeth who followed the queen to the scaffold he was deliberately ill-used by simon and those who followed him as custodians so that after thermidor he was found in an indescribable state of filth and ill-health his treatment after that date was improved but his health was irretrievably broken so that when in the early part of seventeen ninety five the royalists and many moderates began to look towards the temple for the solution of the constitutional question the committee of public safety began to hope for the boy's death this hope was in part translated into action the dauphin was not given such quarters such food or such medical attendance as his condition required and his death was willfully hastened by the government how important a factor he really was appeared by the elation displayed by the republicans over the event for louis the seventeenth was a possible king while louis the eighteenth for the moment was not it was the comte de proven brother of louis the sixteenth who succeeded to the claim he was one of the old court he had learned nothing in exile he was associated with the detested emigres the men who had fought in conde's battalions against the armies of the republic and as if all this were not enough to make public opinion hostile he issued proclamations on the death of his nephew announcing his assumption of the title of king of france and his determination to restore the old order within a few days a royalist expedition conveyed on english ships landed at quiberon on the breton coast and fanned to fresh flame the embers of revolt still smouldering in brittany and the vendee hoche had been placed in charge of western france some months before this and by judicious measures had fairly succeeded in pacifying the country he met the new emergency with quick response collecting a sufficient force with great promptness he marched against the royalists who had been joined by three or four thousand breton peasants he fought them back to quiberon cooped them up stormed their position gave no quarter and drove a remnant of less than two thousand back to their ships that was almost the end of the trouble in the west of france there was still a little fighting in the vendee but after the capture and execution of charette and stofflet in the early part of seventeen ninety six hoche was left master of the situation while the royalists were being shot down at quiberon the convention was debating a new constitution for france a constitution no longer theoretical no longer a political weapon with which to destroy the monarchy but practical constructive framed by the light of vivid political experience intended to maintain the republic and to make of it an acceptable working machine what was decided on was this the franchise which the legislative had extended to the working class after the tenth of august was to be withdrawn from them and restricted once more to the middle class there were to be two houses 
The lower was to be known as the Corps Legistif, or Council of 500. The upper was to be chosen by the lower, was to number only 250, and was to be known as the Ancients. The lower house was to initiate legislation. The upper one was to do little more than to exercise the suspensive veto which the Constitution of 1791 had given to the King. Then there was to be an executive body, and that was merely the Committee of Public Safety modified. There were to be five directors elected for individual terms of five years and holding general control over foreign affairs, the army and navy, high police, and the ministries. The Constitution further reaffirmed the Declaration of the Rights of Man and guaranteed the sales of the national lands. This Constitution had many good points, was not ill-adapted to the needs and aspirations of France in the year 1795, and it was hailed with delight by the public. This at first seemed a good symptom. But the convention soon discovered that this delight was founded not so much on the excellence of the Constitution as on the fact that putting it into force would enable France to get rid of the convention of the men of the Revolution. This was a sobering thought. After some consideration of this difficult point, the convention decided, about the end of August, on a drastic step. To prevent the country from excluding the men of the convention from the Council of 500, it enacted that two-thirds of the members of the new body must be taken from the old. This was the famous decree of the two-thirds, or decree of Fructidor. Now there was something to be said for this decree. It was, of course, largely prompted by the selfish motive of men who, having power, wished to retain it. But it could be urged that since the fall of Robespierre, the convention had steered a difficult course with some ability and moderation, and had evolved a reasonable constitution for France. Was it not therefore necessary to safeguard that constitution by preventing the electors from placing its execution into the hands of a totally untried body of men? Whatever there might be to say in favor of the decrees of Fructidor, they provoked an explosion of disgust and disappointment on the part of the public. The sections of Paris protested loudly, sent petitions to the convention asking for the withdrawal of the decrees, and getting no satisfaction took up a threatening attitude. The convention had weathered worse-looking storms, however it held on its course and appointed the 12th of October for the elections. The sections, led by the section Le Pelletier, thereupon organized resistance. On the 4th of October, 12th of Vendemaire, the sections of Paris called out their National Guard. The convention replied by ordering General Minot, in command of the regular troops in the city, to restore order. Minot had few troops and was weak. He failed, and that night the convention suspended him, and, as in Thermidor, gave Barras supreme command. Barras acted promptly. He called to his help every regular army officer in Paris at that moment, among others a young Corsican brigadier, Bonaparte by name, and assigned troops and a post to each. He hastily dispatched another young officer, Murat, with his hussars, to bring some field pieces into the city, and so passed the night. On the next day, the crisis came to a head. The National Guards, between 20,000 and 30,000 strong, began their march on the convention. They were firmly met at various points by the government troops. General Bonaparte caught the insurgents in the Rue Saint-Honoré at just a nice range for his guns and promptly poured grape in and completely dispersed them. Once more, the convention had put down insurrection, and once more it showed moderation in its victory. It only allowed two executions to take place, but held Paris down firmly with regular troops. Bonaparte, whom Barras already knew favorably, had made so strong an impression and had rendered such good service that he was appointed second in command and not long after got Barras's reversion 
and became General-in-Chief of the Army of the Interior. With this last vigorous stroke, the Convention closed its extraordinary career, a career that began with the monarchy, passed through the Reign of Terror, and finished in the Directoire. End of chapter 15